Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless. So while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program special broadcast with Spring Washam. I'm Christy Peoples. I'm a producer here at Sounds True, and I'm going to be your host. Spring Washam is a well-respected meditation teacher, author, and visionary leader based in California and Peru. She's the author of A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, courage, and wisdom in any moment. Spring is also considered a pioneer in bringing mindfulness-based healing practices to diverse communities. She's also one of the founders and core teachers at the East Bay Meditation Center, located in downtown Oakland, California. She's received extensive training by Jack Cornfield. She's a member of the Teachers' Council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California, and she's practiced and studied Buddhist philosophy in both the Theravadan and Tibetan schools of Buddhism for the last 20 years. In addition to being a teacher, Spring is also a shamanic practitioner, and she studied indigenous healing traditions and practices for more than a decade. She's the founder of Lotus Vine Journeys, and that's an organization that blends indigenous healing practices with Buddhist wisdom. Today, she's going to be joining us from Los Angeles, California, while the Sounds True team and I are joining you from our Boulder studios. And before I welcome her, I want to tell you what her topic is, because it is very timely to our teachers in training. She's going to be speaking about the spiritual ego, pitfalls, and glory in the teaching path. Thank you so much, Bring, for being with us. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Christy. I'm so happy to be here and happy to offer some reflections to this group of teachers that are in the training process and I hope that the topic's really relevant. It feels important and timely to um, think about these topics, about the spiritual ego. And I hope that I can share some insights about that and then have a good Q&A and discussion. And the discussion, it goes on and on around this topic. Um, as we see, we are really living in historic times right now where we're seeing many teachers and many different traditions um, from Catholic tradition to Buddhist traditions to also the insight tradition has not been um, without its kind of uh, difficulties and ethical issues uh, evolving teachers and how to see ourselves and learn and grow and watch out for this um, sort of not watch out in a scary way, but become very mindful of our actions and our motivations as we take the teacher seat. Um, and we'll spend some time talking about the teacher seat too, because that for a lot of new people, that can be very scary. Um, and it does involve responsibility, nothing to be scared about, but there's a level of responsibility that comes with taking that seat. And so how can we step into that with compassion? So that's what I'd like to share with you. And as we think about the historic times that we're living in right now, we could also look at it as a sort of a time of transparency. So everything is immediate. 
you know, in the old days, teachers would teach in remote places and they didn't have Wi-Fi and people weren't recording them and taking photos of them and then posting it within minutes after a talk or during talks. I've had people while live streaming me. I didn't even really know. Luckily, I'm just sharing what I love to share. So it wasn't anything embarrassing or hurtful. But we live in glass houses right now. We, we do. And so we get to see our immediate impact on a group. What we say, what we do, how we say it, who we're referencing, um, all of that goes right out into the community and beyond. Um, and so we really wanna be thinking about that in a loving way. There's a famous Tibetan teacher who said that there's two, two streams on the spiritual path. One leads to Buddhahood and one leads to egohood. And they look very similar for a very long time, but their roots are very different. And so the first thing I, I think is really important is to always be reflecting on what is your intention? Why do you wanna be in teacher training? Why do you wanna teach? What is it about? What is your core motivation? And just to be always reflecting on that. Like, why do I want to do this? Is this to maybe have people think I'm smart and wise? Is this because I kind of want to be seen? Is this because I um, want to share what I know to have, you know, be helpful? So if we're really honest, we'll see a lot of different motivations at different moments, right? And I think a lot of us working with this topic, the pitfalls and glory, is becoming radically honest with our mind states and our motivation at any one moment. And those are always changing. And also it's important to know that our motivations and intentions will never be 100% until we're fully enlightened. So we might be doing 75% for all beings and then 25 for, I hope I look great. <laughs> hope I build an audience. I hope people think I'm funny. I hope I'm, you know, we're always gonna do that. As long as you have your eye on that 25%, you will stay humble, okay? Never lose sight and, and see that as the practice itself. So that leads me into more deeply into the first level of this and teaching as a spiritual practice. That is really how I look at teaching. And it's always humbling for me. Every time I step in front of a group, I see them as my teachers. I learn from every workshop, every retreat, Every teaching dynamic, every collaboration is an opportunity to learn, right? I see myself in a new way, right? I, I, I learn something from the audience, from what happens, even if it's difficult, right? I can learn from that. Um, and it's really important that you start to see that even the topics that you're interested in become the topics that you need to learn, right? That's what's so great about it. You're researching things that you need to grow in and you're not even realizing it. Like, oh my God, I need to think about the heart. Why am I teaching about this every day? Uh, universe is giving you a sign, right? And so, so if you can stay humble with that and always be real with your students and with who you're teaching. Don't try to teach beyond what you know right? Don't try to teach advanced levels of emptiness beyond conceptual awareness unless you're there in that reality, right? Because there's a weird phenomenon that could happen is that we start teaching beyond what we know, and then we start believing that we're beyond what we know. So we want to just be humble with our students. When people used to ask me questions, you know, when I started East Bay Meditation Center, I was teaching huge groups of people um, from all walks of life, urban communities, you know, my seven o'clock Thursday night class, you know, 100 people would just come in. So I was teaching to many different people at many different levels, but I was always humble about where I really was. Like, wow, today I really struggled, guys. Today I had a hard time. Today I didn't want to meditate while I sat for 20 minutes. So there's a kind of realness that we bring, and that's I guess you can say authenticity to what we're saying, that we're not sort of deluding ourselves by leading our students to think that we meditate three hours a day and we live on kale smoothies and wheatgrass and we're so calm. 
that it's not really accurate. Most meditation teachers, and trust me, I know many in front of the scenes, behind the scenes, we're all struggling, right? We're all living this practice. So I think it's really important to be real about that. Here's what I'm struggling with, guys. Here's what I'm grappling with. Here's what's challenging me right now. How about you? And that brings a real connectedness and you stay uh, true to yourself. Now, we don't want to go too much into self-disclosure, okay? There's a, there, you know, there's a balance. You don't need to tell everyone the gory details of your meltdown and how, you know, like there's a balance. So you have to find that between sharing a little and sharing, whoa, TMI, I didn't need to know that because now you've brought them into a place that they don't need to go. Because as a teacher, you are trying to inspire, you are trying to uplift, and you're trying to share the message, you're trying to transmit something. Um, so that's a whole video in itself, disclosure and boundaries and what's keeping it real and being vulnerable and what's, whoa, way too much and you're freaking people out and, you know, as they're sitting there witnessing it. So, but I have a feeling you'll, 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 you'll tune into that because again, you will get feedback ASAP, right? It's not, it's not a hold back culture we're living in anymore. It's an automatic, I will send you an email 10 minutes after I leave saying what I liked and what I didn't like. That actually can be helpful. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, okay, so let me mention a few of the ways that we get lost sometimes in our egoic, um, uh, sort of lose track of ourselves. One is we're not practicing what we're preaching, which I kind of just mentioned. We, sometimes what happens is we grow to a certain level and then we think I'm a teacher now, I don't have to practice as much. Danger zone, danger, if I could highlight that, I don't need to go on retreat, I have that opening at, you know, this, I'm so clear now, you know, it's so effortless. Big danger, honestly, when I've seen teachers start to go off the path is when they stop practicing. They don't feel that they need a daily practice anymore. They feel that their practice is in motion. I live it now. Very slowly that starts to degrade, right? Because our practice is essential in having some sense of formal practice time is really important. Okay. So Make sure that you're not telling yourself, I don't need to sit. I don't need to pay attention like that anymore. You know, there's a way that we slowly, the Dharma starts to get whittled down. And we think that we're somehow more evolved than we are. And that can slowly become to more and more lead to more unconscious action. Right. And then we start to fall into a spiral there. Right. So make sure that you are staying on your path, that you are always practicing. The best teachers in my view are ones that take off time a lot for deeper reflection time. And that's what keeps your channel alive, right? That's what keeps you relevant in a way and also connected to your heart more, right? And less analytical and in the head, right? When we're too much in the head is where the ego takes over right? We want to be in the body. We want to be in the heart. We want to be, why are we teaching for compassion, right? Not for any thought ego-based, you know, thing. We're teaching to reduce suffering, you know? That's how I always look at it. And when I get away from that, I start to feel the repercussion of that. I start to feel suffering instead of joy teaching. And that can be also a wake-up call when your teaching becomes painful you don't want to do it. Something's going on. That's the time to kind of pull back and reevaluate, right? Reconnect to the practice deep within yourself. So spending time every year on retreats, spending time daily, reflecting and studying, all essential. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, practices four hours a day. He wakes up at three o'clock in the morning and practices till seven. If this teacher who's supposed to be an emanation of the Buddha of compassion is with four hours of practice. I mean, that really makes me like, wow, yeah, I definitely need to stay the course here. So don't underestimate your own practice time and build it out. Make sure it's a commitment. Um, also, sometimes uh, where I see teachers go wrong is when they start preaching to people 
um, in a way, right? We get excited. We want to, it's like evangelical. (laughs) Everybody needs to do this. And we start like kind of pushing people to our class. You have to come to this. People used to ask me all the time, how do you reach people spring? You know, because I would have big classes and I would say, well, I I let people reach me. (laughs) I'm not grasping after them. I'm allowing them to touch me. I'm being open. It's a different mindset between I need to get clients, get students, get, you know, people to, oh, I want to allow people to touch my heart. Like, yeah, a class is a healing for me and them, right? It's like, it does something when I'm sharing the Dharma with people, the humility, the love, the openness, the vulnerability. I mean, here we are with our minds. They're crazy. You know, we, we want to hold people in that. We want to, we want to be there for that. Um, Also, um, you know, as you think about your own, you know, as we make this video for the the teachers in training, I want to talk a little bit about the shadow of jealousy, too, because I've been in different groups. And, you know, whenever you have these superstar teachers, everyone's kind of vying a little bit for attention and time and opportunities. I think jealousy um, is something that we don't talk about enough because it's such a, what we consider deeply not spiritual quality, right? It's like jealous teachers, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, not me, but I recognized this really early on in myself when I was first coming into teacher training, there was another teacher who started getting all this attention in the book deals, it starts there, right? And they started getting all this attention and we're being flown around the world. And here I was struggling, you know, and couldn't make a living. And, um, and what jealousy does is when you're in a large group of people, you can't help but compare yourself to everybody else there who you're going to be seeing your colleagues and your friends growing at different levels and some having opportunities and some not. And if you're not aware of that, that feeling of envy and you don't use it as an opportunity to look at what's going on, cause it can be such a, a a beautiful reflection, you'll start um, resenting everyone around you. It leads to, you know, pretty soon this, my beautiful friend who I loved, because of her success, I started having a hateful mind. I mean, that's powerful, right? Instead of, because she's living her best life, I'm mad, you know, and I just, the suffering of comparing ourselves to everyone around us is real, Oh, it could be online, but in such a large group of people, you'll have some who are just have all these opportunities. You have to really look at that, what's happening, and use it as a way to come back to looking at your gifts in the world, gratitude, that everybody's growing at their own time, and there's enough uh, pie to go around. And so a practice that I was started to use, and is really a great antidote is mudita practice, happiness for the happiness of others. And that transformed my mind. Anytime someone's getting all this success that's in my field. See, if it's not in your field, it's easy, right? You're like, oh, but if it's another mindfulness teacher, suddenly this shutdown, right? We're like, well, what about me? What am I gonna get? I didn't get that. Or, Or you dismiss their abilities, their achievements, right? They don't deserve that, I do. A lot of suffering. Okay, so better than, less than, equal to the comparing mind and what comes out of that. Be on the lookout. And if you do feel that you're overcome with envy or jealousy, feel it, open to it, and use it consciously because then you stop the actions right there, right? You stop the thread of negativity and you use it as a conscious practice to cultivate gratitude and mudita. Um, And I'm going to be making a blog about jealousy because I have seen it in many manifestations in subtle digs with other teachers, even senior teachers. I've seen this even in Tibetan teachers that Rinpoche is not that great, you know, like, you know, this kind of slap to the others. Yeah, that's an aspect of the egoic mind. Okay, so we want to celebrate the Dharma and all of its diversity. And all of his voices, all these voices are really needed. So be mindful of putting other teachers down, especially in front of students. 
that's a big one, right? Putting other teachers down, saying things about other teachers, um, and just feeling superior or inferior, right? Those are aspects of the, the egoic mind. One of the challenges that I had around this when I was getting out of teacher training and growing in different ways, I was always practicing, but nowadays teachers have to be almost like small businesses. They have to climb the mountain of success and it feels not conducive to what you're offering. <laughs> These ancient mindfulness practices, but wait, now I gotta do social media to promote my ancient mindfulness practice. It's, and then charge money because I have space, you know, and all these different things come into mind. Um, and it's really easy to get lost in social media and lose sight of what it is that you're really trying to do. I know for me recently, that kind of happened to me a little bit due to my book publisher. My first book, A Fierce Heart, came out and then it was republished a few months ago. Um, by a new publisher and this new publisher was saying you need to work on your platform right and I was like my platform right oh yeah and, I, and then I started looking around like oh everyone else has a million Instagram and then and I started to get lost subtly I started to get lost in it but not so subtly I started to feel the suffering and I said, you know what, I, I'm either in it authentically or I'm not. If I wanna post something beautiful, I will. But if I don't, I'm not, because that's not true to me, right? And I, I know that that's a struggle and we can get lost in social media just like anybody else. And we have to be on the lookout for that. What are we saying? What are we posting? Why are we posting that? And um, not kind of go unconscious there right? You want to stay true to yourself. You will have to engage and you will have to promote your work. Otherwise, people often don't find it. That's the dilemma, right? We have to be seen and available for people to connect. Um, however, don't lose sight of organic um, promotion, meaning that a lot of your best stuff will come just by the universe and word of mouth too, right? People love it. They share it. It grows, you know? So I just wanted to mention that because that, that was a really big issue for me and it still remains kind of an issue um, on how to, how to relate skillfully um, with social media when it seems all about the ego in a way. But needless to say, the Dalai Lama has Instagram, Twitter, uh, uh, Facebook, and uh, you know a, a website with tons of photos. So there is a way like, okay, how can we use this in the service of putting out messages of compassion, love, and mindfulness. We're evolving in how to do this um, and how to grow. Okay, so I wanna talk a little bit about the teacher title and identity. Oh my gosh, you know, we go through these trainings and then we have this identity, right? That we're supposed to write teacher on this or act like, what does that mean? I think I'm still learning about what that means, but what, here's my own personal thoughts about that. One is that as we take this role on, we have to step into it with a level of responsibility. We have matured when we start using that title because in some way what we're saying is we're a guide now that we've attained a certain level of mastery, a certain level of awareness. We know we're not gonna, you know, we're not fully enlightened beings. If we waited till full enlightenment, none of us would teach. You know, we take our broken wings out there and we fly our best with them, but we don't forget like, wow, I got some kinks here guys, um, but I'm doing my best here. Um, but there is a level of responsibility and that comes with a higher level of awareness. And I will honestly say, everybody, it comes with a level of renunciation. It really does. And I'll say a little bit more about renunciation. So 14 years ago, we started the East Bay Meditation Center. And I was a younger teacher at that time. Here I was one of the founders. Here I was teaching a huge amount of our weekly at a sitting group every week. I was doing community classes uh, two nights a week. And then I was even doing like a day long on the weekends. And I started to see right away that the renunciation is I can't engage with people the way I did before. Not when they're, I have my name and title as the teacher. 
I can't date my students. I can't flirt with them. I have to be mindful of hugging them. I actually have to be more aware of what I'm saying, more aware of what I'm doing, more aware of how I'm dressing. And there's two ways that you can look at that. You can look at it as the suffering of that, or you can rise to the occasion and think, you know, I'm a channel. I'm holding an energy for others, right? And with that comes responsibility. I'm sort of carrying these dharmic teachings forward. And there's a kind of renunciation. I, I remember the first time I realized that I couldn't go to this one party because all of my students were there. And it wasn't like a party party, but it was like a potluck with music. And I said, I can't really hang out there. These are my students that were just at my day long and it wouldn't, they wouldn't know what to do with me in that context there. And I wouldn't either. And it's not that I'm better than them. No, I want, they were people that I wanted to be my friends. But when you are teaching people for a long period of time, there's a power shift there. There's a, um, there's a sort of, you're, you're helping them carry a certain light forward and it's in them. I would tell my students every day, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. It's in you. The love is in you. I appreciate your devotion, but it's not about me. It's about you. So I would always say that, but yet there was a level of renunciation. And when teachers don't realize that they are on that level, they start hurting students, right? They start dating them. They start talking to them in casual ways. They start interacting with them and they're not recognizing that students are holding you as an example of a spiritual, uh, you are their spiritual example in that moment. So there's a lot about transference, counter-transference in the teacher role. But you have to know that if you're not ready to accept that responsibility, then don't put yourself out there as a teacher. You have to have very clear boundaries. And sometimes it would make me sad, right? I was like, oh, I'm not, I can't hang out with you guys, you know, and, and talk about all the stuff that I would like to talk about sometimes and not be on the teacher seat. So you need to have a separate peer group, okay? And so there was a teacher recently who had a huge fall from grace in the LA area, huge, well-known teacher, author, I won't say who, but they trans, they didn't see that they were a leader in the community and they wanted to hang out and all kinds of ethical issues evolved out of that and confusion in the mind of students, right? Because you're not just everyone, you're leading them on a retreat. You can't hang out with them on Friday night, the following week after the retreat's over and just say, I'm not doing it. Now we're hanging, right? No. So be aware of that, um, that you have to have a certain level of contact. Otherwise, if you start just wanting to hang out with them, that's are your desires. Those are, you're looking for something more. You want your students to feed you in a certain way, which you, you can't do, right? That's what you're renouncing. You're renouncing that I need you guys to give me stuff, interact with me. Um, They'll give you stuff, but not in the way that, that you want, right? Not in the way that ego wants some kind of extra. So be on the lookout for that. And if you're resisting that level of renunciation, just be aware of it. Just feel into where it feels stuck for you, where you don't want to rise to that or where you're getting confused. A big thing that will help you is having a peer group, having mentors, when teachers start going into egohood, it's because they have renounced their teachers. When they start going rogue in all the traditions, then things start getting a little hectic. You need to have a feedback loop of elders, of someone who you trust, someone who can listen to your talks or see something. You go, wait, I'm seeing something here. Feedback is, is really important. I value that. So in your classes, incorporate evaluations. I know it's painful <laughs> to read something awful, or, but it might be something that's true, right? Something that we're doing that's not quite, oh, I'm glad I caught that. Recording yourself can be really helpful, right? Li record yourself. If you're not somewhere where they're recording it, just put your iPhone there, record it yourself. And then you can reflect back. Oh, is this what I meant to say? How was I answering questions? Was I in touch? Was I present? Um, this can really help. So reflecting on yourself. Um, and, um, and then also the glory, 
So, you know, a lot of you will get amazing opportunities and you'll get a lot of praise. You'll fly around and maybe some of you will end up at Google and some of you will start your own retreats and some of you will um, go into corporate mindfulness or some of you will work with youth. And there'll be a lot of times where people might hear something very profound that you say, of course, teaching mindfulness, and they'll mistake the Dharma for you. (laughs) I'm a channel, right? So when people come up and go, Spring, I love you. Oh my God, I accept that. And at the other time I say, yes, it's the Dharma you love, right? I made them feel something by sharing something that felt true to them, right? And I'm, I'm teaching something and they're, they're touching themselves, right? In their own way, their, their hearts opening to their own insight and realization. Um, so, so don't take the praise too deeply in, right? Because, you know, that also has a certain, it can make them, I'm the greatest or I'm the best. Like you'll get praise. And then the right around the corner, guess what? You'll get a lot of uh, blame too, right? And so that's why I say always have, you know, that balance. You will, some, some of you will get a lot of inspiration and you'll take off and you'll soar in different ways, but it's important to not let praise you want to take it in, you want to have a high self-esteem, but you don't want it to feed some part that you start thinking, I know everything, I'm special, I'm better. We're all just channels here. We're all just helpers. Um, so stay humble. The humility is really key. So having your mentors, having those things in place, asking for feedback, all of those are really important things to be reflecting on. Um, and then having to, lastly, I'll talk here a little bit about before we go into a Q&A portion, is make sure that you have your own boundaries clearly established. What are your boundaries? And what are your ethics? Obviously, as Dharma teachers, we want to be really following uh, precepts and how we engage and what we say and all these different things, but really establishing that for yourself so that when something gets crossed or something goes beyond that, that's like your wake-up call to check in with that because you will make mistakes. You will say crazy things. You might say things in the moment that are exaggerations beyond belief, some little thing you make, you know, we say things for laughs. We say things for entertainment. We misquote quotes or totally mess them up and attribute them to other people. We take other people's work. We, you know, we, it, it happens. I've seen it all in the last 20 years with very senior teachers to teachers that were just training at a community level, right? It's okay, but you want to just be aware of it. You want to to reflect later, okay, was that authentic? Was that true? What was I going for? Not to beat yourself up, but to wake yourself up. This is a spiritual practice, right? And it could feed the deluded mind or it could feed you for freedom and make you a lot more real. Or you could just start spinning out into grandiose fantasies and it's a slow journey. That's why the Tibetan phrase, egohood and Buddhahood mimic each other side by side, but the roots are different. The ego loves, the sense of self loves to go, oh, we're going spiritual? I'll be the most spiritual one of all. I'll look the part better than all you. <laughs> I'll act the part. That's what the ego does, right? And so it's we're all dealing with it. We're all, but it's the level of mindfulness that you have. That's why your Teaching practice can be a liberation practice if you allow it to just reveal, reveal, pull the layers off the ego gains because it, it, it's raw and right there in real. There's nothing like having an audience to reflect the truth of things to you. So let yourself be curious. Let yourself be open to being wrong, to being touched, to being seen, to being deluded and use it like, yeah. Embrace it as part of another layer. So, um, so on that note, I think my final note there, we can go into some Q and A, and hopefully that can be really helpful. Wonderful. I mean, this was so incredibly helpful. Thank you for that, Spring. Oh, you're welcome. You know, I wanted to go into um, 
the the intro, like when I was introducing you, I was talking about your experience and the fact that you have been steeped in the Theravadan tradition and the Tibetan tradition, and you've really, you know, you've really done so much deep training over a lot of years in addition to your own teaching experience. And this program is, by and large, a secular program. I wonder how important is it for teachers in training to have a particular um, understanding of various timeless traditions? I mean, coming out on the end of a of a two-year training program, and ta-da, I'm a teacher. What exactly uh, do you think those deep traditions uh, can offer to new teachers? Yeah, that's a very good, that's a great question. You know, I'm thinking of it more secular, even though Jack and Tara are so steep themselves. So use that as an example. They're teaching a secular tradition or, you know, moving that forward, but their history um, has been deeply involved with psychological psychology too, clinical psych and um, a tradition. I think, you know, as a teacher, we want to be constantly learners. You know, when we stop being interested in learning, whoa, we stop growing, I feel. Like I'm always interested. Now I'm studying yoga teacher training and yoga after all these years onto this other thing and and pranayama and all these, you know, we want to be thinking about meditation as this evolution of continuous growth. How could it not be? You know, your training for a lot of you is the beginning of something. It's not the end, right? It's like, oh my God, the whole path is opening up now. You know, it's like the door opens. It doesn't shut and go, well, I know everything about meditation. I would hope not, but some might close the door and go, I'm trained. No, no, you know, so some of you may be really interested in where the roots of mindfulness have come and different traditions and traveling to Asia and learning from maybe Buddhist teachers or psychologists are just going deeper with it, but continue to keep growing, keep learning. Um, It will only serve you and your students. And so what about teachers who just come out of the program and feel overwhelmed? Because as you shared, there's a lot of responsibility Mm -hmm. in being a channel and in holding a space or an energy for those students who might be coming to us. What if there is a feeling on the part of the teacher, the new teacher, that says, oh, this is hubris for me to assume that I can hold this or that I have additional material or information that my student, my students don't have? Right. Well, I'll first say that um, I have that thought a lot. Even working on my new book, I'm like, who am I to talk about this? What is who? What are? Did they make a mistake? So there's all. That's a good quality to have. You should, in some way, be a little bit like, whoa, what am I getting myself into? Um, you know, I don't really know that much, and here I'm trying to write something that'll be published. Um, yeah, it's scary to step in whatever level you are stepping out into. And I have a funny story about that when I was. Um, coming out of teacher training at Spirit Rock, I remember Jack and another teacher cornered me in a room at Spirit Rock. And we're in the teacher area and they forced me to start teaching in a way. And I was like, I'm not ready. I have problems. I can't do it. (laughs) I don't want to do it. Well, I I did want to, but I was scared. I was scared of being seen. I was scared of messing up. I was just, I felt like I wasn't ready. And so for a lot of us, if you feel so put together and you feel like I can go out there and teach it, that's a lot of delusion in that too, right? Because there's so much to learn and grow from. So it's okay to be scared. It's okay to feel unprepared. It's okay. If this is something that your heart's like, I want to share this with the world. I want to, I want to put this out there. I want to engage, trust your heart. Your heart will know what to do. Right. And so the ego also plays a lot of games and will keep us from teaching too. You're not good enough. You're not ready. You know, go, go to more therapy, lose weight, or I mean, the crazy thing, right? It doesn't, 
you know, it will come up with a million excuses, reasons, and will feel unprepared. So you just notice that feeling of fear and you might take a little time. And this is where your spiritual friends and mentors will come in, right? If you have a cohort group of people, talk about it. Having a teacher sangha, this saved me. I was very lucky that I have so many friends who are also teachers. We all went to training together. We knew each other. We used to sit retreats together. So we've all kind of come up together. And when we're struggling with this thing, identity, and holding the seat skillfully, you will make mistakes. Don't, no doubt about it. But if you're open, you own them and you learn and you, you will grow fast from them. You'll never do that again, right? You go, okay, well, I didn't answer that question well and I got feedback or I didn't know how to handle that woman or that man or that situation or that community very well. If you stay open, you, you can't help but grow. We're in it to grow and to liberate the mind. First and foremost, that is my motivation. When I lose track of that, the ego sets in because the ego has a different set of wanting to do this. Your Buddha mind will say, this can be liberation. The ego mind says, ah, oh, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference, right? It'll care about all the externalities, all the things that don't matter as much. But the, the true Buddha in us, the true, if you don't relate to the Buddha secular way, you know, whatever it is, that spirit, Panchamama, God, grace, that is what we're in it for. So we just have to keep coming back to that. Can you say a little bit more about social media? Because even as we're growing and giving ourselves space to learn and identify our own style as teachers, and I say our because I'm right along uh, with with the viewers, I'm in the program as well. So I wonder about the uh, social media and immediate feedback and whether that can impact our otherwise natural inclination to uh, test and play with how we might establish or realize our identities as teachers, right? Because if we feel like we're being scrutinized, then it would seem that uh, that being under that gaze could impact a you know the way that we might otherwise naturally arrive at our talents or find out what our particular niche is as teachers. Right. Okay. I mean, I so understand the complexity of social media and it's, as I've grown up as a teacher, it's grown, right? In the last 20 years, I mean, it, it's like, oh my gosh, what, what am I doing? How are we navigating? How is this affecting me spiritually too? And, um, it's a new territory. And I think we're all discovering how to navigate this medium, which is this razor sharp mirror reflecting back our drama and our, the best of ourselves and the worst of ourselves at the same time. Um, all I can say is for a lot of us, we have to just be willing to be a little bit fearless you got to put yourself out there. It's almost impossible at this stage to have a thriving community without some aspect of social media because that's how the world connects, right? That's how people are connecting. And so your, your brand or your style or who you are, um, it can't be predicated on what social media thinks. And what's so exciting, which I love right now for people who feel afraid, is the embrace of all of everyone's side. You know, like the traditional yoga teacher is gone, this ideal of, you know, you can be any size, you can be any, any gender, you can be, you know, and you'll find your crew, you'll find your tribe. So there's something I also appreciate about it. It's like, they're just looking for you in a way. They're looking for that frequency, the dharma you bring, the wisdom you bring, the style you bring reflects them. So there's something scary. And also you can use it to connect with those who uh, are looking for you and will reflect you and you'll reflect them and you'll be able to dance with them and share and grow and grow a community and and that's what we really want to do is we're growing these communities and we're growing ourselves. So, so it's a, it's a, 
I don't know if I'm answering the question because there's there's the drama of in the suffering <laughs> and then there's the joy of you can be out of the box now. We've kind of blown the lid off what a meditation teacher is supposed to be, look like, feel like, all of that. It's it's a channel. And, you know, so, but it's, I will say it's confusing and I'm still learning. I'm still making my way with relating to that. Well, now what about, okay, so we're, let's talk about community. How do we establish community or facilitate community as we go out and find our way as teachers. I think even a part of that question that I would put in front of that is how do we begin to teach? Where do we start? Yeah. Where do you start? That's a great, um, that's a really, really important place. So people from all over the world I know are in the training and there's places that, um, you know, and I'll just tell you a little bit how I started. One thing I did was very early on, I was very young, I started just having a group at my house and I just called it, I would make soup and it would just be us hanging out, meditating, and then checking in with a group of friends. So they knew that, you know, every other Friday they could come over my house, hang out, and that began to grow. And then as I saw myself as a teacher, it's funny to you know, I guess it's the law of attraction, you know, that when you start thinking of yourself like a teacher, then opportunities for you to express that. Oh, okay, we're doing this now. It's amazing. It just starts knocking on your doorstep. And so I think I put together a really low budget website at that early stage. And I just got calls all over from the community and to come out and teach a class here now at the time I was living in Oakland. So there was always a community clinic and I kind of started there. Um, some of you will have mentors that are, are trying to des designing retreats and might pull people into that if then that works for them. But I think you can just start with where you are. Where's your local yoga studio? What do you want to share? Is it something with women? Is it something with gender? Is it something with sexual orientation? Is it something where you just want to share relaxation uh, practices, mindfulness? So you can start by just putting something together and offering it. Yeah. And you'll have to just trust how that goes. And the first time is all scary and learning and oh my god I didn't do that right and the music fell down in the middle and this went on and there was noise outside and you just kind of take it all in and every that's why I say every time and I mean this Christy at the bottom of my heart every time I teach I grow in some way even doing this I'm learning I mean this is every time so you you can't really fail and I've had I put on events where only three people came and I worked on it for a long time you know, and I was like, wow, well, this doesn't feel great. But then I learned from that. So you, you just, you do it for the heart. You do it for the goodness and it, it grows. Communities grow and they want to flower right now. Everybody's looking for someone to do it too. You set up the class, you get the bell, you get the cushions. I'm there, you know? So Things happen very quickly. So if someone's dedicated and willing to put that work in to establish community, start where you are, start with a, a group, start once a month, start at your library, build a class. If you want to do a sitting group that meets weekly, that's a level of commitment. We did that. I learned a lot when I did that at East Bay Meditation Center, but I was kicking and screaming at first. I was cornered in a room to start that class. And I, I went out crying like, okay the best thing I ever did. The best thing I ever did. And I was scared and trying to figure out topics and you just go through it. And then it becomes joy because you're just looking in the eyes of people around you and you're just together practicing. You know, I am so loving this version of, uh, teaching or future teaching, because I've also been sitting in these peer groups where these kinds of questions come up. Oh, I'm nervous. Oh, it's hubris. I don't, I'm not sure. Where's the tradition and all those kinds of questions, but you make it so relatable and real. I mean, right down to social media and jealousy. And I find that 
hugely empowering and refreshing. So thank you for all of that. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, and and I also want to ask you to say a little bit more about mudita, like cultivating that happiness for happiness sake for for the for others that we might uh, be jealous of or feeling a little bit of of envy around their accomplishments as we also set out to achieve in similar ways. Yeah, so you all really can practice because you have such a big group and so many dynamic people that are going in so many different directions. You yourself, somebody could be sitting there going, I wish I was a producer and sounds true and could do all this. You know, it's like you never know. We're doing it. Other people are doing it. Um, So I really started to practice Mudita a lot because as I mentioned the story where I had a good friend and this was years ago who kind of shot right to the top of where we were all, I didn't even know I wanted to be there. I certainly wouldn't have wanted to do what she does, but there was something about getting attention. And, and, you know, I think at the core of us, we all want that. So we have to remember there's that, that, that little girl, little boy, little, whatever, he or she or they there they are on a stage and we're getting a certain kind of um, rapport we're entertaining we're we're sharing we're humanizing with people we're you know we're touching something here and we're being touched in that and so we all long for that in a in a way um, I think the jealousy part comes in a lot when we don't remember that this is an abundant place here she, in my mind at that moment, I was never going to be successful because she just took it. And that was all there is. <laughs> and didn't matter that I was nowhere near ready to go where, you know, what was happening to her. I wasn't ready. But we believe that there's not enough to go around. And it can feel like that and be reinforced like that. You know, like there's not enough, there's not enough clients. There's only so many people out there that want to learn this. And they took all the customers. <laughs> But we have to keep coming back to this is abundance, that there are 7 billion people on this planet, and we are just at the beginning, not anywhere near the end of this mindfulness revolution. People are at, we are at, you know, ground level in my mind of this, in this movement, especially secular mindfulness, right, and learning about awareness. This is even though we might feel saturated, you know, being in this kind of organizations, I, I feel like it's everywhere, right? No, it's not. And so there's so much opportunity for everybody. So I try to look at it as being when I'm jealous, there's a poverty consciousness there. It's there's not enough. There's not, they took my pride. There's not enough. So first I could become aware of that. And this could happen at every level right? Two very senior llamas could battle it out, right? Or two, you know, uh, it, it, politics. This is every area where this is happening. But the mudita I started to cultivate um, is that I, you know, started visualizing the person and saying, may your happiness grow. May it flower even more. I'm happy for your happiness. And then seeing them outside of my poverty-stricken mind, I, I genuinely could cultivate happiness. I could see them laughing. I could see them traveling. I could see them sharing. I could see them with the money that they got from that. <laughs> I could see, you know, I'm like, yes, in this unstable world, they're sharing their joy and they're being supported by it. Like, don't we all want to see more of that? You know, so there's a point that you have to kind of work with your mind when it comes up strong and it will catch you by surprise because we'll think, oh, I'm too spiritual for that. Now I've seen it. I even saw it again in a not another subtle way, uh, you know, just in the writing process and looking at authors online, like, you know, oh wow, well, that person has the best seller in the New York. Really? You know, and then I got I caught my mind, like, of course that person does. They probably work, you know, you, you know, and then I had Mudita, you know, it's like, yeah, of course I should celebrate, but just catching it before it festers into a negativity where we start becoming angry and hateful because that spirals us into aggressive action. I mean, that's what's fueling the whole internet troll world. Those are all jealous people. Someone posts a beautiful picture of them, their new happy life, and then 20 people, you know, 
throw shade, hate, whatever, (laughs) (laughs) using all the lingo of the time. (laughs) We're the same way. We just do it spiritually. You know, we just, it digs in meetings. Like, no, you know, it's the way we look. It's the, we're still doing it. We're just pretending it's, it's a higher, it's a more sophisticated level, but it's still there. And who wants to feel that? And then we don't really attract what we're, we're in a poverty mind. We are, what we're wanting to create moves away from us, not closer to us. So I've really been interested in that feeling a lot and kind of uh, healing that. And I look forward to catching it now because it's a part of my mind that's still stuck in uh, poverty, poverty of the spirit. So I like to catch it and then do the process and then get to Medita. And then it does feel so much better. And so is it a matter of uh, a sort of fake it till you make it or visualize it and let the energy of it catch up to you or meet it someplace so that you can really experience what you what you call this beautiful reflection or opportunity for beautiful reflection? So like, give me an example of what that would look like. So, okay. Um, this amazing teacher, Spring Washam, is like doing all these fabulous workshops. She's been teaching for decades and she's awesome. And I want to have that. I mean, I'm, of course, like, you know, just having fun. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so if I look at you or I look at this this person that, that I've been a peer with and I say, okay, I feel a little jealous. I'm not trying to take anything away from them, but I recognize this is my own poverty mindset. How do I then reach reach toward Mudita or extend myself toward it in an authentic way? Or is it is it about, okay, I can see this person happy, but I can't quite feel that happiness yet. Is it is it a it's a repeated practice where I come to it and allow myself to roll out okay. more happiness naturally? I would say that it is a practice for sure. The first mm-hmm. time you might just be just all like, she's not all that while you're trying to be, <laughs> right? Or whatever, <laughs> whatever the mind is doing. Okay. I'm better. I don't know. I saw her make a mistake or whatever. You know, it's just to see it is like, okay, this is suffering. First and foremost to say, this is hurt. This hurts. Jealousy is a very painful place. It's a place that we just feel like I'm nothing. I, so the story in the mind is like, I'm never going to be able to do this. That's the real story it tells. I will never be able to be anything like that or even anything like I imagine myself to be. Not even, you know, and somehow she reminds me that I'll never do it, right? That's really the story that we're telling. And so we can, again, use awareness, mindfulness, feel into that feeling of contraction, feel the hurt. Often when I was feeling those jealous feelings, I was like, you know, if I really tuned into it, I would feel deep sadness, right? Because there was something I was believing about myself in that moment. I can't do it. If you get underneath jealousy, it's like, I can't do it. I'm not enough. You know, it's poverty, but it's also a sense of I'm not strong enough or wise enough or something enough to attain that. And they, they are, and I'm not, and I'm mad about that. The lie is where we're mad. It's not true that we can't do it, but we believe it in that moment. You know, so practice, yes. And in all of the Brahma Viharas, which are, you know, love and compassion, joy and equanimity, they say that this one is the hardest one. True mudita. Happiness for another person's happiness is the hardest to generate. Because we're so used to comparing mind better than I'm better than you. I'm less than you or I'm equal to you right off the bat. We size people up really quick. Right. And if we, you know, the mind sizes, not the heart, the mind. Um, And so, so be, yeah. So you might feel into that. And if it's pervasive jealousy, it could be something like, Hey, I want to work on this for a couple of months because it's about my self-esteem. Spring is just a mirror or Christy's a mirror. Jack's a mirror. Tara's a mirror. You know, um, but what what am I seeing about me and not mirror? So I encourage people to really work on that because there is something to have to overcome to put ourselves out there around feeling like I can do it. 
Yeah. And, and I'm like that now working on the second book. Can I do it? Can I not do it? But I just conscious of this narrative and the feelings. And so sit in meditation, just feel it. And tears may come and anger may come and old memories of being bullied or our parents or who do you think you are? It's also about growing, you know, like, who do you think you are? But, you know, like shut down, we clamp down on ourselves. So there's a whole world in that. I'm really exploring it because I don't, I think it's an unconscious uh, mind state. Mm-hmm. Somehow we're not talking about it enough. And it's everywhere in this online culture of ours. And it was like, no one's really talking about it. I'm like, wait, we should be on the spiritual path because it's there, everyone. So maybe I'll, I want to write a blog about it. Maybe it'll open it up more. I'll be looking for that. I mean, it, it's really, it's exciting. Um, it's really rich. I, I won't, I don't know that it's always exciting because sometimes it's just overwhelming. <laughs> but the opportunity for learning and growth in that practice is huge because it's also kind of baked into our culture, right? The the bootstraps and you can make it on your own and you go big or go home and be big oh, and bold yes. and all that stuff, right? Um, in the vein of growing, and this is, I think time for like last question here, but in the vein of growing and, um, stepping into more, uh, ownership or presence of being a teacher, can you talk about how we might go about finding mentors for ourselves along the way, people that would resonate with where we want to go or who have shown examples of what it's possible to become? How do we find those people? How do we work with them? What does that look like? Yeah, that's a really good one. And um, and it's hard to find true mentorship, I'll tell you. you know. And even myself, I've been asked when I was in uh, Oakland, a lot of younger people would come in and they saw me as more senior. So they would say, be my teacher. And I would freak out and run away. <laughs> like, I don't, I can't do it. I'm still, I have to go to retreat. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> like I could teach the class at mentoring. So yeah. And as I've gotten older now, I'm, I'm developing capacity and I really see it as capacity to, to be there. For people to be there when they're struggling, when they want to talk about it, they bombed on something or they feel they did, or they made an error or they're struggling or something's going on, or, you know, they're working on something really important for a teaching or something. Um, but it really is trust that if you put it out there, again, I'm going to ask you to use sort of your spiritual eyes and heart here, that when you put it out, you will attract that. You know, when I was very young, I wanted a teacher and I ended up meeting Jack Hornfield by accident. I ended up on his interview sheet at a retreat, my first retreat. It was like unheard of. Even he looked at me and goes, who are you? How do you get on my interview list? I was like, hey, I'm not making the, the decisions around here, <laughs> you know, and then you end up with a mentor and be clear in what you want. Sometimes people would say, I want you to be my teacher. And I would say, well, what does that look like for you? Are you looking to check in with somebody maybe once a month? So know what it is that you're looking for, right? What do you want? Do you, would you like it to be in the same city as you? Try to get to specific. What kind of support would you like, right? Okay, so then a teach somebody that you approach could say, you know, would you be willing to talk once a month about my teaching and how it's evolving and maybe listen to some talks or offer me some support and growing here or writing? I have so many different types of mentors. I have like a shamanic teacher. I have Jack I go to about teaching. I have a meditation teacher I go to. You know, I have a list. So you may end up having a whole tapestry of support. My yoga teachers who I go to with certain problems and, you know, um, so you might, so that one person's not trying to fill it, but that you have a sort of clear, like, who would I like to help me in my teaching part? Okay, who might understand this and get clear and you'll start to draw that in or you'll draw in a spiritual friendship that mirrors that for a while until maybe another mentor could come. But you start with maybe someone in your group, someone in the training, a friend that you admire, someone who wants to help. Um, that you feel connected to. And then lastly, I tell people that if there's a teacher that you love, 
if you start showing up at all their teachings, they're going to notice you because that's how I got on a lot of teachers radar. I was like, hi, I'm here. I'm in the front again. Hi, I'm here. <laughs> like, oh, oh, spring. Oh, okay. Yeah. You've been at my last five retreats. I'm like, yeah, I need to talk to you. You know, and then it's the squeaky wheel, the dedicated student gets to always they got my time, even at East Bay Meditation Center, the person who was always on the left every Thursday night. I was like, okay, honey, I lovingly approach because she's also, or they are putting in the time, right? So that shows like they have a real connection and then I would feel a spirit connection back. So if there's someone you love, you, you, you show up enough, they're going to pay attention and go, okay, okay, I'll, I'll work with you, you know, because they'll see what, that you're serious versus just an email. So those are a couple of the ideas that, you know, around mentorship, but it's really helpful to have a spiritual community of peers. And then if you have mentors, blessed are those who have wise elders and mentors. I wouldn't be anywhere without them. I, I really say that full-heartedly. So. Spring Washam, thank you so much for all of the tips and tools and resources that you've shared with us and the insights, all of it. Oh, thank you. And, I'm, <laughs> and good luck with your training and good luck with the group. And I'm so glad that this is a benefit. And I hope that um, it's helpful. That's all always helpful. Mm-hmm. To I'm sure to so many. Well, everyone, this brings us to the end of our time together for this special broadcast. Once again, a bow of gratitude to Spring for joining us. And I'd also like to thank all of you who were able to be with us. We really appreciate you sitting in as well. For Sounds True, I'm Christy Peoples. And for MMTCP, I'm also Christy Peoples right in there with you. Thanking you again for being with us. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. <laughs>